good morning. Welcome to church. How are you? Good. I want you to, I want you to know that Chandra and I, uh, who's leading worship with us today, we're all so very impressed with your energy this morning. We don't understand it at all. But her and I, we were coming, we were coming for you, but we did not expect you to meet us. And uh, I'm so grateful for that. If you're new, my name's Danny. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're in a series right now called That's Not Helpful. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. But uh, it's been a bit of work because a lot of you uh, have decided to email me and let me, let me know what, what you think about uh, what is or isn't helpful about uh, what I've been sharing. And I just want to appreciate you for it because at Kesed, we, we fight well. We, uh, we, we disagree well. We set intention well. I'm not here to convince you of anything. I'm just here to, uh, to, to kind of, we say, uh, tussle your hair a little bit and kind of, especially for those of us in the room who use a lot of product. Uh, <laughs> It's not the worst when you're having a good hair day and someone just tussles your hair. I'm like, what are you doing? You're not the Holy Spirit. That's the only person who's allowed to touch my hair. So I, I'm excited that you're here. I'm excited that you are willing to sit in that space because today, uh, that's exactly what we're going to do. Um, today, I'm going to pick a fight with you that, uh, that I don't need to win. I don't care about winning. I simply care about fighting. Uh, I believe that Jesus did that a lot, as a matter of fact. He, 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 he picked fights with people that he knew he wasn't going to win. He knew he wasn't going to convince them. But he still did it anyways because I think sometimes families need to work stuff out. And uh, sometimes families need to share what they're feeling. And I think it also just allows space for everybody in the room to kind of go, okay, so, so I can have a different opinion than, than that guy on stage who appears to have authority. Or I can have a different opinion than my, my mom or my dad who seems a little over-controlling. Or I can have a different opinion than then, then we as a church need to learn that sometimes fighting is helpful. Uh, not always, not every time, but sometimes. So today that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, I'm going to start off by setting the stage uh, with a great fighter in the Bible, and that is uh, Paul. Paul is writing to the church, and he's encouraging them to do this very thing. He's encouraging them to, uh, to get into it, to talk about it, to to live in it. And so in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, uh, this is what he says. He says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Those are the qualities you need to fight well, by the way. Those are the things you actually need in order to engage with people around you. It's not about just swinging on them suddenly, it's about those qualities compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then listen to what he says. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns, now he's getting into church, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He says, you need to have these qualities, you need to have these characteristics, and if you can have these things, then you can engage in a deeper sort of community that is helpful. We are called as Christians to be helpful. We are called as Christ followers to also evaluate the things in our lives that are not helpful, that are hurting us. He goes on to encourage them basically to live at a boss level. 
He wants us to live at boss level holiness. He wants us to be able to engage with people different than us. But if we don't learn to fight well, like, like we're gonna do here today in this room, in and amongst ourselves, then we are going to be terrible at fighting with the world who doesn't even understand these rules and never shows up with meekness or kindness or humility. They're cheaters, all of them. I am too. You are too. But we're not supposed to be. We're supposed to be people who live this out. He continues on in the next chapter. This is where he ramps it up and he starts to get a little offensive. He says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. Listen to what he's talking about. Now he's talking about the church that's fighting well, that's figured this out, that can live in the tension going out into the rest of the community. Open up a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Uh Uh-oh. That's everybody who's not an insider, by the way. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is a beautiful description of how the church is supposed to function in itself and how it's supposed to function in the world. We are supposed to walk with graciousness, with the world and be helpful because the world doesn't understand the rules. That meekness is to be applied, that humility and kindness, that all the fighting we're doing, even this right here. My hope is that although you might leave offended and a little bit uh, discouraged or convicted, that you still know I love you. But the world doesn't know that. And so he says, season your words with salt. That's an interesting phrasing. Now he's tying back to these church people the words of Christ because Christ, this was his idea. He's the one who described his followers as the salt of the earth in Matthew 5 as part of his Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I'll put it on the screen. There's only two purposes for salt in the first century. The first one is preservation, and the second one is, for what Paul said, enhancing flavor. That's it. That's really primarily what it does. As a preserver, this metaphor really sort of should convict a lot of us, because as a preserver, Jesus probably meant that his disciples, you and I, if we claim to be Christians, by the way, are those same disciples, just generationally distant, that you and I are called to be preservatives in the world, slowing down the advancement of moral and spiritual decay. That we're supposed to stand as light in the darkness. That we're supposed to stand as hope in the sadness. Because this world is struggling. This world is hurting, and as believers, we are to preserve truth and goodness within it. Now also salt, as he said, is supposed to be a flavor enhancer. Jesus probably was instructing his disciples to enhance the flavor of life in this world, enriching its goodness and making God's work stand out from the normal way of doing things. This is where it gets really real time. You are supposed to be a flavor enhancer. My guess is most of you connected with the earlier version 
which is I want to preserve the, I want to be the light in the world. I want to preserve uh, truth in the midst of moral decay. I connect with that. I connect with standing firm. I connect with, with believing. I connect with standing up and speaking out. If you are a Christ follower for any amount of time, you will eventually figure out that most churches agree with that. It's the flavor enhancing part where things get a little weird. It's the part where we're actually supposed to create a message and a, and a product. <gasps> product you say where is this sermon going we are we're not here to create a product i believe the bible says we're all supposed to be creating fruit which is a product of a healthy growing vine of a healthy growing tree we are absolutely supposed to create a product and not a sour one and not a gross one and not one that only your grandmama will eat because she's the only true christian you know We are supposed to be creating a product. Jesus says stuff like, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be the sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Jesus is like, do good to people who don't do good to you. Love people who don't love you. Serve people who don't serve you. Fight with people who cheat. Now, you're supposed to figure that out eventually within your community. I am too, where you, you're kind and you're empathetic and you're gracious, even though you're not all agreeing. You're supposed to create, this is supposed to be not just a house of worship, not just a house of communication. This is also, in a beautiful way, supposed to be a house of tension where we come in and we bring our stuff. But most of us, we're not allowed to bring our stuff. Most of us didn't grow up in families, especially as teenagers, that we could share our opinions of the world. We were just told to do this and eat that and swallow this and this is how it works until one day we escaped. We ran out into the world where they understood the flavor of the life we wanted to live and many, many times we were dismissed because of it. Did you know that that's all supposed to happen in the church, in this family and in our our more nucleus family? We are supposed to create space for people to bring everything they want to bring and we are supposed to love them like Christ did. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Are you unkind to ungrateful people? I'm not. I got a problem with ungrateful people. And I call them out, and I shouldn't. And they never respond well to when I call them out because I don't really have any relationship with them. I just want to be like, hey, don't you know that things are better? I'm just a walking cliche like you are. Don't you know you have so much to be thankful for? Don't you know? Don't you know? And over and over and over throughout the years, I found myself not helpful. This is what Jesus says to stop doing. He says you are to enhance your message, to salt your message. As believers, we are to behave in ways that reflect God's nature, ways that accentuate the difference that Jesus makes in one's life. If Jesus is asking us to salt our lives with the flavor The flavor has to be the presence of Jesus, which means your life has to first be salted in order to walk into anybody else's life and enhance anything. And if you taste like trash spiritually, why would anybody follow you to Jesus? All he would be to them is the great chef trash in the sky. Well, I don't want that meal. I don't want that marriage. I don't want that hypocrisy. I don't want that discrepancy. I don't want that. I don't want that. Why? And then people, and then you judge them. I know I do. Well, you're not grateful. You should bend your life to the Lord. You should lean in. And people are like, but you're leaning out, bro. 
Like, your whole world is a hot mess. Your kids don't talk to you. You don't have enough space to handle the people that are genetically built like you. How are you going to handle people who are completely different in every way? I told you, I'm, I'm just here to fight. I'm not even here to win. You see, the Bible teaches us that we're supposed to be experts as Christ followers at loving, talking, and spending time with everyday lost people. But we aren't. We're generally terrible at it. Instead, this is how we communicate God's love to people. And this And this These people go to church, by the way. These people read the same Bible you and I do. These people call themselves Christians. These people spread this message in the name of the same God you serve. They just do it without any salt at all. They feel something, they slap it on a sign, and they shove it in your face. And anyone who's different than them is torn to pieces. They're called lukewarm or cowards or weak. I know, I've received those emails. They're confused why I'm not down, you know, at the, at the, at the parade. They're confused why I'm not down at the community event. They're confused why I'm not down uh, marching. They're confused why I'm not down here or here or here or here standing for things they believe we should stand for. They're confused, frankly, why all of you are here. You know the biggest thing that people say when they come to Kesed is, how did you find all these older folks? And how are they putting up with this base? I said, I think they're people who are tired of living unsalted lives. They're tired of, of passing and pressing a message on that, that, isn't, that isn't tolerant or loving or kind or generous or gracious. They're tired of belonging to a club of hate. See, here's the thing that I don't know if a lot of people realize, and I'm going to illustrate something in a, in a little messy way and then a big messy way. I don't know if you realize how quick you are and I am to judge people based on my worldview, my initial sort of bedrock of understanding, and so on. So before I do this, by the way, uh, I have one big request. I really need you to hold your emotions open-handedly. I need you to understand that what I'm about to do to you is happening on purpose, that, that you're not the only one in the room feeling this way and that there is a point to what I'm sharing. So here's the start of my messy illustration. These shoes that I have on right now, these are my pink Jordan 1s. I wore these today because they are the most uh, uh, talked about pair of shoes that I own by all of you and not all in a positive way. I know. Some of you are sneakerheads like me, and the first thing you think when you see him is, oh, I love those. I wonder where he got them. Those are super trendy. He's so much cooler than I thought he was in real life. Th things like that. That's probably, <laughs> that's probably what you're thinking. That's probably what you're thinking. But not everybody. Because a lot of people have different worldviews about shoes. And so I've had some people ask, basically, what'd you pay for those? You're a pastor. Don't you know you shouldn't be wearing Jordans on stage? 
you're making the church look bad. <laughs> One guy, you're making Jesus look bad. I'm like, you don't know Jesus doesn't wear Jordans. You don't know. You don't get to decide that stuff. Calling me out of my extra biblical and throwing yours in. Here's my point. Unless you grew up like I did with an understanding around shoes like I did, then you're going to have an opinion about these shoes. I even had one gentleman tell me, you know, boys shouldn't wear pink. I know, right? He didn't go to the church after that conversation anymore, but here's where I want to go. What's interesting is I lucked into these shoes. My wife and I were walking through a mall in Portland. I saw a bunch of guys in the shoe store surrounding a pile of boxes, and I knew right then I got to get in. So I just stood in like I was one of the employees. I said, what just dropped? And they showed me the shoes, and I said, I'll take a pair. They had them in my size. They go, you, you really ought to. These are going to be gone in two hours. And I said, I know. I bought them. My wife had no idea. Our marriage ain't perfect. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> She actually didn't even like them. She's like, I don't even like those. Those are ugly. They don't even look pink. And I'm like, because they're not pink. They're Arctic, okay? It's not the same thing. Relax. (laughs) Now, here's what you also may not know. I didn't pay anything above retail, but if you look the shoes up, they are probably going for more than that because shoes drop in specific ways and in what uh, in certain, what's called a colorway, which this particular colorway is this pinkish color, black, white, and pink. And then they stopped making that shoe for a while. So here's what, if you didn't realize, you could think, Danny's wearing really expensive sneakers. Danny's uh, out doing stuff he shouldn't be, I guess, with these sneakers. I don't know where the sneaker logic goes, but I've heard some crazy stuff that these sneakers have led me into that I've never done. And here's the other thing. People think I have 500 pairs of shoes because they're always super clean. No, I just grew up poor and learned when you got your school shoes to wipe them down every single night. So I still wipe my shoes down every single night. I have dress shoes. I have two different pair of dress shoes I've had for 20 years. They're vintage and legit. You don't know what you don't know. And so you judge. And so do I. See, everybody has a pink Jordan portion of their life. Something that you see and you're like, hmm, that's interesting. I don't know if I would have worn that. I don't know if I would have done that. I don't even know if that's right. We all do it. And then we decide, I'm in or I'm out. And then we base the rest of our relationship with those people on that sort of experience. This is why I want to say again to the teenagers in the room and to especially parents and grandparents in the room, when your kids roll in in stuff that that is just expression of who they are, chill out. They're not from your generation. And by the way, I've seen pictures of you in the 70s. Everybody thought you were crazy. You're lucky to be alive. Stop judging. And they're all wearing your clothes again anyhow. So how good is that? We all have illustrations and spaces like this. We all sit in these sort of things. And here's what we need to realize if we want to be helpful and flavorful to the world. That our initial response, your initial response to him as a person, will usually determine whether what he said was acceptable or not. Or what she said was acceptable or not. Your initial response to somebody that you come across will often determine just what it was that you didn't like about them instead of actually even listening to what they said. I want to give you a very messy example of this. 
This is going to make things just a little bit more complicated. I'm going to play a video for you. Again, hold your emotions, and then we're going to talk about it. Please watch. Um, so I think something that your uh, viewers really connect with in your comedy and your hosting skills, yes. especially in the like, past few years, is how open and honest and authentic you are about the role your faith plays in your life. Oh, and I was wondering, is there any, you know, does your faith and your comedy ever overlap? <laughs> and does one ever win out? I think ultimately, us all being mortal, the faith will win out at the end. <laughs> but I certainly hope when I get to heaven, Jesus has a sense of humor. But I will say this, I will say this. Uh, someone was asking me earlier about what I, this, is, this relates to faith because my faith is involved with, I'm, I'm a Christian and a Catholic and that's always connected to the idea of um, love and sacrifice being somehow related and giving yourself to other people and that death is not defeat. If you, if you can see where I'm getting at there. Someone was asking me earlier, what movie did I really enjoy this year? And I said, well, I really like Belfast, which is Kenneth Branagh's story of his childhood. And one of the reasons I love it is that I'm Irish and uh, Irish American, and it's such an Irish movie. Um, and I think this is also a Catholic thing because it's, it's funny and it's sad, and it's funny about being sad. In the same way, that sadness is like a little bit of an emotional death, but not a defeat if you can find a way to laugh about it because that laughter keeps you from having fear of it. And fear is the thing that keeps you from turning to evil devices to save you from the sadness. As Robert Hayden said, we must not be frightened or cajoled into accepting evil as our deliverance from evil. We must keep struggling to maintain our humanity, though monsters of abstraction threaten and police us. So if there's some relationship between my faith and my comedy, it's that no matter what happens, you are never defeated. You must understand and see this in the light of eternity and find some way to love and laugh with each other. Now, hold your emotions, just, just let them sit with you. Be aware, as I said earlier, that your initial response to him as a person will usually determine whether what he said was acceptable to you or not. I recognize in the room playing a video like this uh, is, is very uh, fight-inducing. You're seeing a wealthy white man who's Trump-opposing, foul-mouthed. He's an entertainer. Some of you would be like, he said he's a Catholic and a Christian. How could those two things be? But did you hear what he said when asked in his medium about his faith? Did you hear the quote? This is what it said, it's from Robert Hayden. We must not be frightened nor cajoled into accepting evil as deliverance from evil. We must keep struggling to maintain our humanity though monsters of abstraction threaten and police us. It's a beautiful quote given by a complicated individual. Now what's amazing is that when you saw the earlier signs, everybody in the room went, oh, disgusting. Because that worldview opposes just about everybody's worldview in the room. But when he got on with Dua Lipa, two people who certainly aren't walking around just proclaiming the gospel 24 seven, the room kind of went a little, uh, 
And did that uh, keep you from listening to what he said? He said, we must not accept evil as deliverance from evil. Isn't he speaking against signs like this? Isn't he speaking against signs like this? So does his political view or, or his, his skin color or his gender or his whatever mean that the quote he said isn't a quote you could learn from? Here's a big question. Can someone that's not in the church, can someone who doesn't even believe in God, we'll, we'll stretch it all the way out there, say something sacred? Can they say something holy? Can they say something that anoints and adorns and encourages or do you just go, nope, yep, nope, yep, nope, yep, to everyone in your life? See, our initial response to the pink Jordans, this is how we live. And this is what the world sees first. And even when the world kind of lets us in just a little bit, even when the world shares a quote that's beautiful that we agree with, we don't pause in the midst of our story and go, whoa, whoa, hold on, that was brilliant. That was epic, that was beautiful, that was sacred. We call out all the areas in their lives that we don't understand. Now, you may think that that feels like a misrepresentation or generalization of Christians across the board. And I would say, I'd have to acquiesce and confess, that in some ways that is true. But I would also maintain that in other ways it is not because it is what we've all been trained to do and think and believe. Even in this room right now, you are sitting, and I think many of you know this, some of you don't, in a non-denominational church. This simply means that we are in many ways on our own because Kesed was planted from scratch with no help from any outside source or organization and because all that we had was each other, we grew into a place where the accountability worked in a biblical-based way through elders, over me, over the team. But there is no organization back east calling shots or supporting us if things don't work out or dictating what we say. That would be called a denomination. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with denominations. I grew up in multiple denominationally based and blessed churches. But when we planted Kesed, this is not the route we decided to take. Now, you also may respond, yeah, that's probably because no one would take your hot mess of a pastorate. And I would respond by saying, you shut your mouth. And then I would say, actually, that's not even true. We almost became a denomination. We were shocked uh, six or seven years ago uh, by a gentleman that wanted some of the church planning expertise we have in this scrappy community. And he sat down with me and he said, Danny, if you could dream, tell me about the church you would build. And I talked about this church. And he goes, man, that seems like a lot of money. How much would you need? And I just threw out a pie-in-the-sky number of $5 million. He asked he goes, that's doable. I said, what? And he goes, yeah, well, we have a lot of money in the denominational coffers. And so what if we, what if we helped you build that building and then uh, you would give a percentage back to us for the remainder of your ministry? There's only one catch. You specifically, so your family, would have to move eventually to wherever we would need you in order to coach other churches how to develop and grow. We really prayed about this. We thought about it. We didn't know. Maybe this was a way that God was going to provide for us. We had no buildings. We really had no prospects. We were set up and teared down in a school with 145 people it took to tear that thing 
down and set it up every single weekend. But that's not the call that God had on my life and on my family's life, and so we said no. But almost we became a denomination, and here's what's, I've realized this a long time ago, by the way, for those of you who are proud that we're non-denominational, I get a lot of that, like, you know, I really enjoy that we have this sort of structure, and I'm like, yeah, but be very clear, being non-denominational is in and of itself a sort of denomination. So don't take too much pride in acting like we figured something out because all of us non-denominational guys get together and we're like, look what we did. And I'm like, isn't this what all the denominational people do too? And they're like, I don't know, I'm not in one. I'm like, ha me either. Here's my point. Nobody has anything figured out. Be a denomination, don't be a denomination. Grow up in the 70s and rebel then, but pay the costs and now become something different now. Then raise your teenagers who rebel in a different way. Why don't you just let them not figure it out like you? Why don't we just call it what it is and say we're all on this journey together and there's space for your pink Jordans too? Why don't we see our own pink Jordans, by the way? Stuff that people are like, why do you keep doing that? And why don't we process it? Why don't we do, hopefully, what I did? Because I knew I was going to have to be accountable every time I walk up here with shoes. People are like, man, what's your shoe budget? I'm like, bro, I've had these shoes for four years. I just keep them cleaner than you. What do you do, puddle dance every day after church? I don't know. (laughs) Somebody's choking to death. That was so funny in the front row right now. (laughs) There are right now 45,000 denominations globally. 45,000. There's Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Baptist, Methodist, it goes on and on and on and on. You think that's rough? Did you know that we have about 50 main versions of the English Bible today? 50. My point is people are still trying to figure this stuff out. This is what Christians love to fight over. This is why the world wants nothing to do with it. Because we aren't willing to hold our emotions open for ourselves, let alone other people. Now, Back to our human punching bag, Stephen Colbert. Shortly after the video clip of him and Dua Lipa came out, someone unexpectedly tweeted support for how he handled the question asked of him. The man's name was Timothy Keller, and he's a well-known evangelical professor and pastor and much, much, much more conservative than Colbert. As a matter of fact, about him, the also fairly conservative magazine Christianity Today said about Timothy Keller, 50 years from now, if evangelical Christians are widely known for their love of cities, their commitment to mercy and justice, and their love of their neighbors, Tim Keller will be remembered as a pioneer of the new urban Christians. This is what he said about that exact interview. Quote, this is a brilliant example of how to be a Christian in the public square. Notice the witness, but in a form the culture can handle. We should desire to have more Christians in these spaces and give them grace as they operate. But he doesn't agree with him here or here or here. Why is he giving him any kind of credence? This man knows his Bible. This man is much closer to where we are in worldview. And yet he says, look at the salt in that man's life. Look at the flavor. Look at those pink Jordans and the people he's reaching with them. And guess what happened? Tim Keller got destroyed by the Christian community. They called him names. They cursed him. 
They basically said, you're no longer going to be part of us. He made an initial response. He says, please do not make the error. This is a professor. This is someone who deals in a lot of logic. If you cite person X at all, you must answer for everything person X ever did or said. This is not fair. I am merely saying this is a winsome way to answer this question that we should desire to emulate. People attack that quote. So he responds again. Note, he says it in a more elementary way. (laughs) When you quote a person as an example in a particular moment, it doesn't mean you have to answer for that entire person's life for that quote to be valid. It's almost like those who do so don't want to deal with the material at hand. We're too caught up in the color, the colorway, instead of looking at the heart behind what's being said. He finished finally, kind of wrapped up this controversy when he said, the recent post I made about Stephen Colbert's partial answer about his faith and the ensuing comments has shown me American Christians still have a long way to go on understanding Colossians 4, 5, and 6, which we read earlier, how to be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. This is called contextualization. He goes on to teach about contextualization. Contextualization is adapting your message to be understandable and compelling to particular hearers without compromising the truth in any way. I don't know about you, but I have never in my life been in a church service where somebody actually taught me about this. And yet Jesus is like, be salt. And we're like, cool. And he's like, be salt. And then Paul's like, be salt, specifically to outsiders. Be flavorful, merciful, loving, kind, gentle, all those fruits of the spirit. Produce a product with your life and your community that people want to come and consume because they are starving to death outside in this world. And yet, he was destroyed for all of this. He says, why is it important to contextualize, not just spiritually, but within our person? Because it's already how we as humans communicate. Everyone already does it. As soon as you choose a language to speak in and vocabulary, you contextualize. This is why you talk different to a five-year-old than you do a 50-year-old. Because you recognize the audience and the person that you're talking to. Back to teenagers. How often do you sit with your child and see them as a child or a young person or an adolescent or somebody adventurous or somebody trying? How often do you not say, but don't you know, I, was, I experienced this. You should learn from me. Why didn't you learn from your parents then? Why'd you experience it then? Hold those emotions open for yourself, and everybody else. Paul himself does this, and he does it in such, a, in such an awkward but beautiful way in uh, the book of Acts. In Acts 13, 14, and 17, he's presenting the gospel. In Acts 13, he's presenting it to blue-collar pagans. He uses a specific language. In Acts 14, he's, uh, he's communicating it to educated pagans. Sorry, Acts 17, educated pagans. And in Acts 13, he's communicating it to believers. He constantly, over and over and over, is contextualizing. He says things like in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, and I hope this smacks you right in the face because it sure did me, (laughs) with love and gentleness. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. How you doing on being a servant to all real quick? 
Yeah, you got that one? Good. I have made myself a servant to all that I might with, that I might with more of them. Verse 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, he's not calling people to sin in order to reach people. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. Notice he didn't say to the strong, I became strong because that's easy for everybody. It's easy to be strong when everybody's strong around you. It's easy to be a part of the movement and the club when you're accepted and hold your colorful hate signs. That's easy. What's hard is when you're called to be weak with weak people or to be outside what seems normal for a church community, outside the law of how this works. What's acceptable? That's when being flavorful is difficult. Just FYI, Jesus as both God and man in the walking, touchable incarnation was itself a kind of contextualizing so that we could understand he was the word made flesh. He came down and he said, I think you'll receive this better. I think you'll see this better. Jesus was like walking flavor. He was walking salt. And he changed everything for everybody because Jesus was touchable. And contextualization is making your words touchable. That's what's helpful to this world. And that's why this church is going to continue to be uncomfortable for those of you who don't want the world's grimy, muddy hands all over your soul's pink Jordans. Because you got them like everybody else. You just think yours are better or more right. I'm here to tell you you're wrong. You can disagree with me if you want. I think the Bible backs up what I'm saying. I think Jesus backs up what I'm saying, that we are called to be a touchable people, to be a blessing to this world like Christ is a blessing to us, to hold our touchability, our influence, our authority, and our callings open-handedly so that in this way we can both receive the blessings of his love and share it with others, not as a burden, but as a blessing. This is the only way I know how to do it. And it has to start with you, seeing that Jesus came first to bless you, to meet you. He, he didn't do it inside the walls of a, of a church. He doesn't need that. He didn't do it inside the walls of, of you walking out this perfect path of repentance or not making any mistakes. He went and found you where you are. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, and I am so glad he did. And he contextualized it. And he made it something that met you in your low spot or your high spot. And he, he was able to see past all the pink Jordan distractions that you thought made you you. And he was able to see into your story and bless you right where you are. This is who our God is. This is where he's going. This is what the message is about. So that's what I'm gonna leave you with. I'm gonna have the worship team come out in just a moment.
and they're gonna sing a song of blessing over you because you cannot be a blessing to anyone else until you receive open-handedly the thing you've been doing this whole time, the blessings of God. But I think some of us in the room, we've struggled to receive the blessings of God because we want them in a very specific way. And God's like, nah, I'm gonna do it this way. Put your hands out. And we're like, no, no, I wanna be blessed like this. And God's like, nah, mm -mm. you don't get to control me. I see you. You're not gonna distract me. I love you. And I'm gonna drive home that love over and over and over through relationship with you. And that's the path we're all supposed to take for everybody that lives in this beautiful city of ours. I see you, I love you, I'm not afraid of you, you're not gonna control me. I get you're trying to distract me with all your crazy stuff and all your things and all your pink Jordans. I don't care about that. Put your hands up, I'm gonna hold you. No, no, you're gonna hold me this way. I'm not gonna hold you that way. I'm gonna hold you like Jesus held me, just as you are right where you are. So I'm gonna pray for you that today shakes you up and you leave feeling bothered like I was building this message. My hope is that this will become helpful for you so that you can become helpful for other people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this space. Thank you for the stories that we get to tell, for the way that you move, for the way that you convict, for the way that you lift up. Lord, we ask that, uh, that there would be more than just a few Sunday morning takeaways, but that, God, this would, this would convict, this would transform, that we would re realize how often you have met us where we are and how often we are not meeting other people where they are, how often we judge based on certain stances or worldviews or, or, or political views and don't actually hear what people are saying. May we see uh, our own pink Jordans. May we see other people's pink Jordans. May we be able, God, just to come together and receive all the colorways that you are building. May it change us from the inside out. Remind us, Lord, of the way you bless us, the way you lift us, the way you carry us. We just receive this from you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace Lord bless you and keep you make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace Amen 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 
keep you, make his face shine upon you, and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Let's all stand and sing. children and their children and their children may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children may his presence go before you and behind you and beside you all around you within you he is with you he is with you in the morning
One more time. Sing it louder. Come on. Go. Sunday.